distinct church. Uh, if you weren't here last week, here's the general premise. Uh, the local church is filled with people and with pictures and with a purpose uh, that intentionally flow against the stream of the prevailing systems and worldviews that we find ourselves surrounded by. In other words, uh, the church stands in dis- uh, kind of distinct, it stands out in contrast against everything else around it. But that distinction, it's not birthed out of some kind of anti-intellectualism and it's not birthed out of any kind of anti Anti-culturalism, cultural bravado, and it's not even birthed out of some kind of Luddite tendency in us uh, to distrust anything that might be named progress. That's not what's going on at all. No, it is birthed out of a position change that God works upon his people to save them from the wrath that they have rightly incurred and owed for their sin and by forever reconciling his people to himself in restored relationship. It's a slightly different status jump. It's not, it's not posturing, it's you have been placed from the, the kingdom of those who deserve punishment, the kingdom of those who, who have been blessed with relationship. And we said last week that in order for us to have any hope of understanding the other four distinctions in this series, we had to first lock down on the foundational one. That our position before God is accomplished by God rather than anything of our own doing. It's not something that we've worked to achieve. It's not something that we've built up for ourselves. This world is filled with religions and with philosophies that teach that we are to clean ourselves up and position ourselves in such a way, posture ourselves in such a way as to, uh, to be pleasing to some external God out there or maybe to some internal God inside of us. But those systems all assume one massive thing, that we have the ability to manipulate the situation. That we can work on the circumstances and we can tinker with the problems ourselves. And I'm convinced that that's why the self-help section is always the biggest section of a bookstore. But the Bible assumes the exact opposite of that posture. It's, It's diametrically opposed to that worldview. Christianity, at least biblically defined Christianity, runs in the complete opposite direction than that. It teaches... That our default position before God is that we are all spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. You remember Ephesians 2 last week that we looked at. That's the language that Paul uses, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And that left to our own devices, left undisturbed, we, all, we, were, we would all gleefully continue on as rebels and usurpers of God's good throne. And, and are therefore worthy inheritors, is kind of the language that Paul uses. So we are children of wrath, the righteous and perfectly just punishment for sin which I'm sure you'll agree is the most attractive sounding message that the world has ever heard, right? Sign me up. And I don't know about you, but one of the things I I love the most about the Bible, it's just me, maybe you're different, but what I I absolutely love about the Bible is it just doggedly refuses to sugarcoat the message. It will tell you the truth about ultimate reality, whether you like that truth or not. Um... And maybe you like that part less than I do, but man, it's just good for my soul. I need that. Okay, but I mean, that's a lot of bad news, though. Where, where does the good news come in? Are we all desperately longing for good news? Well, the good news is that the story doesn't have to stop there. It doesn't have to end with the message of wrath. It continues on. God steps into our brokenness in the person and work of Jesus. And he, and he personally suffers the wrath that I deserve and you deserve because of our sin. 
and through trusting Jesus in faith, his sinless life and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, God does what I cannot do and what you cannot do by bringing us to a new position before him. He picks us up out of our sin and he plops us down at his feet. This is your mind now. Those who are spiritually dead men are now made spiritually alive, is Paul's language. Because of the gospel, we have a distinct position before God, not earned by us or achieved by us in anything of our own doing, but purchased on our behalf by the unfathomable grace of Jesus. And that leads us to our second distinction that we get to talk about this morning. I think we have a distinct priority a distinct gospel priority, Philippians chapter 3. So for those of you who are new to the Bible, what's the 30,000 foot kind of explanation for what the book of Philippians is? Well, here it is. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, so the same guy as last week, right? and it's written to another church that he had a really great relationship with. He was incredibly close to the church at Philippi, right? And so Paul had helped to start the church at Philippi. That story plays out in Acts chapter 16, if you're interested in reading it for yourself. Uh, but before you can understand that story properly, I think you have to rewind the tape and actually uh, understand who the Apostle Paul even is. And that story, that story begins at the very end of Acts chapter 7, all right? And so we're told in Acts chapter 7 that a young man named Saul is standing there watching the execution of the very first Christian martyr, all right? A guy named Stephen. Right? He's, he's arrested and he's stoned to death because he was preaching that Jesus was the Messiah and that he rose from the dead. How dare he, right? All right? And so Acts chapter 8 opens with the incredibly ominous words, and Saul approved of his execution. That's how we're introduced to the Apostle Paul. Saul approved of his execution. So who is Saul slash Paul? Well, Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name. He was allowed to go by both. He chose to be called his Roman name later on in life because he was an apostle to the Gentiles. So we refer to him as the Apostle Paul, but he gets both names. But we're introduced to Saul slash Paul when his Jewish identity was at the very, very top of his priority list, of his value list. At the time of Acts chapter 8, Saul was a young man on the fast track to becoming a success in the, the world of Pharisaism, the Pharisees. Uh, and he, he was incredibly bright. He was incredibly driven. And in those days, if you wanted to advance yourself, you did so by studying as a disciple under a rabbi, right? An established expert in the Jewish law. You would take their, the yoke of their teaching upon you. And those words sound familiar to you at all. And that's exactly what young Saul did. But Saul didn't just settle for any old mentor. No, he studied under the famed rabbi in all the land, a guy named Gamaliel. He was the guy. And so Saul was a blue chip. He had the intellect, he had the training, and he had the pedigree. He was zealous for the scriptures, and that zeal would lead him to taking an incredibly hard stance against a group that he saw as a cult wrecking everything in the Jewish faith that he loved so dearly, the Christians. The Pharisees didn't like Jesus, and they didn't like Jesus' followers, but Saul was a doer, not a talker, so he was going to get busy. And so he made it his mission to put an end to all of this mess. And so he started harassing and arresting, arresting anybody he found to be a Jesus follower. And then he started murdering them. How was your week? 
At the beginning of Acts chapter 9, we're told that Saul was, quote, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. To call Paul a terrorist is not simply fair. It's kind of the only fair thing to call him in those days. But then Saul met Jesus. Or rather, it might be more accurate to say that Jesus met Saul. (laughs) If you don't don't know that story, in Acts chapter 9, as he was on his way to the city of Damascus. He had, he had gotten some official papers to go round up some more Christians. It was legal now. Ooh, it was a good day for Saul. He's on his way, traveling by the road, and Jesus, who had already ascended into heaven by this point, he decided to make a statement. So he suddenly appears before Saul slash Paul on the road, and in an overwhelming light and a booming voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, Jesus dresses him down. What are you doing, Saul? He tells him that Saul is going to be on his team now. And Saul goes, okay, Lord. (laughs) And that's the end of it. There's no negotiating of terms. There's no, well, let let me pray about it and get back to you. Or you've ever said that before, have you? No, Jesus just, just shows up and makes it obvious who's in charge from now on. And from that point on, Paul goes on to spend the rest of his life being one of, if not maybe the best, church planter slash missionary slash theologian slash protector of the faith in the history of God's kingdom. Like Paul's on Mount Rushmore. He's a unanimous ballot hall of famer. One of the things that, that God used him to do was to take the gospel to a brand new continent, to Europe. And I think that we could all admit that that's a, that's a bold step, right? How many times have you done that? I haven't done that. Paul and his associates moved from Asia, Judea and Asia Minor, uh, to to Europe. uh, And and they landed on the coast of mainland Greece. And Philippi was the first big city once they got off the boat. But before Paul even arrived, we're told that God was already working in Philippi. They meet a woman there named Lydia. She was a seller of purple goods. But she was also from the region that Paul had just left. So Paul had an immediate contact. They share the gospel with her. She believes and is baptized. And a brand new church has started in her home. And all of a sudden, the gospel has made it to Europe. The story of the gospel taking root in Philippi is one of the most incredible stories in the book of Acts. God worked in an incredibly powerful way. Now, it had been several years since that moment. Paul had moved on from there to start other churches in other locations. But for the most part, the church at Philippi was doing pretty good. Like, things were pretty healthy in Philippi. There there were a lot of really good things going on that could be pointed to and celebrated. In fact, compared to most of the other uh, churches that Paul writes letters to in the New Testament, Philippi was the non-train wreck, right? Philippi had a lot of great stuff going on. But that doesn't mean that everything was perfect. Um, One issue that they were dealing with, and it was an issue that was pretty much present, consistent, and all of Paul's churches and they were dealing with at some level or another was a group of people called the Judaizers. Now, Judaizers was not a name that they claimed for themselves, but it's an incredibly descriptive nickname because they wanted to make Jews out of all the brand new Gentile Christians. They were Judaizing them. And so Judaizers is a fitting description. Plus, Paul's going to call them something less nice here in a second, so we'll stick with Judaizers. This group would creep into churches, and specifically the church of Philippi, after Paul and other strong leaders had left, and and they would present themselves as leaders from 
other churches far off that the gospel had already taken root in, and, and now they've come to help everyone else now walk in maturity. Well, that sounds helpful, right? And they would begin telling people that Jesus was great and all. We love Jesus. Jesus is awesome. Go get you some grace. But that's just the introductory stuff. What you need is to take a step beyond that. You need to rise to a higher plane of spirituality. If you really want to make God happy, you need to do all the Jewish stuff that the Jewish people are required to do. Things like the ceremonial washings. Okay, that's, I mean, that's a burdensome, but cool. Yeah, we can wash in a special way and, and present ourselves for worship in specific manners. That sounds, that sounds feasible. Okay, well, eating certain kinds of food was, was important to God. Yeah, I mean, I'm a Gentile pig farmer, but I mean, I'll, I'll put that away. I'd love to make God happy with me. But the big one was circumcision. Could you imagine as a Gentile man, you've recently walked away from paganism, you've just become a Christian, and then some guy presenting himself as a new leader in your church tells you that in order for you to keep God happy, you need to start eating kosher and go have a special surgery? Like, how, how do you think that conversation is going to go? And in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul begins to share some thoughts that he has about that group and the problem beginning to create in Philippi. And so Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you as no trouble to me and is safe for you. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All right, so the first two chapters of Philippians kind of seems to make no hint of a problem. It's all kind of rosy, actually. Uh, Paul's writing from prison, which is interesting. Uh, the, the chance is always kind of floating out there on the horizon that he could be executed at any moment. Uh, but, but still, even then, the tone throughout the first two chapters of this letter is, is, seems kind of to be rejoicing. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, he even says, if, even if I'm to be poured out as an offering, I rejoice. The first verse of chapter 3 starts off with the exact same tone. To write to you is of no, no trouble at all. You ever received letters like that? But then Paul plants a foot in the ground and turns the corner going into verse 2. What does he say? Watch out for the dogs. Um, I, I hope you're aware. He is not talking about a bunch of strays running around the city of Philippi. He's talking about people. And even in our own culture, you can tell that we have dismissed with all the niceties now, right? But what's really interesting here is that while a dog would have been immediately understood as a term of derision across pretty much the entirety of the Roman world, the Greek world, it would have, been, it would have immediately perked the ears of all of Paul's audience especially. And that's because it would have been the pejorative of choice for Jews in that day talking about unclean Gentiles. But here, here Paul uses that in the other direction. Speaking about those who were trying to force Jewish cleanliness customs on everyone else, he calls these Judaizers exactly what they probably made a regular habit of calling others. And every ounce of it was intended as an insult. Is Paul allowed to say those kinds of things? I didn't think Christ followers were supposed to be able to say those kind of things. Maybe the right question to ask is, what would drive Paul to think that that's the exact thing to call them? And that comes in the last part of verse 2. Clues us in. It says, those who what? 
mutilate the flesh. It's one thing to coach a new believer towards restructuring their life and their actions around following Jesus. That's, we all had to learn those rhythms ourselves, right? If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you had to learn what discipline was. and You had to learn, kind of begin reorienting your life around now following Jesus instead of all the other things you were chasing after. That's, that's true for all of us. And sometimes it's really, really difficult for that change to come, right? But it's another thing entirely to tell someone that doesn't know any better that in order to make God happy, they need to go and mutilate their own bodies. We're not talking about growth pains here. We're talking about wickedness. In addition to the physical pain, circumcision bears no weight at all, we're told, that on God being pleased with someone. So to teach that it does confuses the gospel. And so Paul, as, as the one who is kind of chiefly, primarily responsible for bringing the gospel to Philippi, he's now hearing reports back to him that people are slipping in, pretending to be authorities, and, and telling them that they have to add a bunch of new stuff on top of the gospel, and those people don't know any better. How would you respond in that moment? I, I think I'm going to argue here that using their own pejorative Nickname back on them is probably the kind way to respond. Because I can think of some other ways I'd like to. Maybe you're better than me. Look at verse 3 though. It says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul's argument here, his argument here is that, and in other places that he discusses this issue with these Judaizers that he's dealing with, his argument is that circumcision is nothing more than a physical marking on someone's body that has no real ability to actually change someone's heart. All right? Yes, God commanded it as a covenant sign for Israel, but marking, uh, but marking yourself as nothing to do, uh, it's nothing more than a physical cut. It was the heart that God always looked upon, not the marking. And so Paul says that all those who have placed their faith in Jesus have been spiritually, or we could say maybe symbolically, circumcised on the heart level and are therefore the true people of God. And therefore to continue placing your confidence on some marking on your body when you don't actually know God is rather foolish. But listen, maybe you really like playing that game. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you come to the table with a long list of really awesome-sounding spiritual actions and some pedigree in your camp, and you think that God and others ought to be impressed with what you bring to the table. Okay. Paul's going to let you play that game for a second. So let's compare spiritual resumes to the Apostle Paul, shall we? Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All right, so Paul says here, hey, if you really want to start comparing our respective Jewishness, I got you all beat. You can't touch me. And then he starts listing off all the ways that he beats out the Judaizers in their little Judaizing game. He says, uh, first off, apparently Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. So what's that about? Well, when the circumcision command was given to Abraham, 
God told him to do do it when his son was eight days old. And that command was repeated all the way down Abraham's descendants. Jesus was presented to the temple when he was eight days old. But just like in our own day and age, there were Jews who were really, really passionate about obeying God and about observing the customs of Israel. And then there were a lot of Jews that weren't so passionate about it. And they weren't in all that big a rush. Sure, circumcision was important, but yeah, we'll get around to it next time we're down at the temple. Eventually. We're told that Paul knows what tribe he's from. And that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. A lot of theories about what all that means, but a lot of people think that it means that Paul grew up speaking Hebrew and Aramaic in his home instead of Greek. And so what this tells us is that Paul was actually raised in an observant family. He was born into this. He didn't come at it late. It's been his whole life. He was the kid going to Sabbath school while all of his buddies were out playing ball. He knows it. Paul does not discount the value of a Jewish pedigree because he lacks one. In fact, he's got a better one than everybody else around him. In fact, he's got more pedigree than everybody in the room that's receiving this letter. But pedigree is not all that Paul points out to. Uh, he, He also has his own personal list of achievements. And so he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. If you're new to the Bible, Pharisees are kind of, they're not really a modern day equivalent, but the best I can explain them as is a theological, political group among the Jews. All right, So smash those two totally not isolated things together into one big thing, and that's what they were. Uh, so you could be a Pharisee, but there were a lot of other options available. You could belong to other groups like the Sadducees or the Essenes, or if you were really crazy, you could be one of the Zealots. All right, JB would probably be a Zealot. All right. <laughs> And each of these groups had entrenched positions about interpreting God's law and how much value should be given to the prophets and how uh, the faithful ought to respond to the presence of the Jewish army running around everywhere. The best analog that for our own day would be to call them a religiously minded political party. And so this tells us that Paul picked his party. He didn't merely drift back and forth through life, waffling back and forth between beliefs about different things. Well, I'm kind of over here in this camp on some days, and I'm kind of over here in this camp on other days. No, he had intelligent and probably incredibly studied reasons for landing on all of the positions he landed on. Paul was the guy who did the research. Paul was the guy who knew how it mapped out. Paul was the guy that knew where the logical conclusions ran to. He not only knew what he believed, he could give you an incredibly coherent reason for why. But he wasn't just a Pharisee. He says, as to zeal, persecutor of the church. Let me, let me translate that for you. Paul says, when it comes to zeal for Judaism, I murdered the Christians. That's, that's what he says. They were wrecking things. They, they were teaching blasphemous things to him. That, that things like that the Messiah had come and that he had claimed to be God in the flesh and that he, he had been raised from the dead after they put him to death. So Paul took it as his personal mission to stomp those heretics out. If you, look, if you locked Paul and the Judaizers in the same room and had a little, you know, who's more Jewish cage match, Paul's the one that's walking out the cage with the belt over his shoulder. He is the champion. So what does any of this have to do at all with our second distinction as a church? 
Right? What does that have to do with our, our distinct gospel priorities? I mean, that, that's the mission this morning. That's what I'm supposed to be talking about. So, I'm supposed to be talking about how the church stands in contrast to the rest of the world. So, where are we, where are we on that? Well, before Paul met Jesus, he was the guy who not only beat out everybody else in this little Jewish rat race, but he was the guy who found his entire identity in being the guy who beat out everybody else in this little Jewish rat race. Everything, and by everything I mean everything, in Paul's world revolved around him being a better Jew than the guy standing next to him. But like I said before, then Jesus met Paul. Look at verse 7. But, some of the best passages in the Bible have a but in the middle of it. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of what? All right, so in case you didn't catch that, here's what Paul just said. None of that other stuff matters to me anymore. Why? Because I know Jesus now. Paul's Jewish identity, the thing, not not a thing, the thing that mattered to him more than any other thing mattered to him, the thing that defined him and shaped his life more than any other thing defined and shaped his life, he now looks at and says, eh, whatever, you can go, I don't need that anymore. What changed? I'll tell you what changed. Paul was given a vision of someone infinitely more valuable than everything he previously valued. Paul says, getting Jesus, and by getting Jesus I mean relationally, not religiously, but getting Jesus made everything else fade into the background for Paul. What was once chief in his affections fell down from the pedestal in his heart the moment he put Jesus on that pedestal. It goes deeper than even that, because look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the things that that Paul lays aside to follow Jesus are not merely less important to him now. And to show that, there there are two words in verses 7 and 8 that are really, really important to note. The first one is the word count. You see that? Happens two times there in verses 7 and 8. Count. I count everything as loss. So, in the Greek, it's a special word called heieume. It means to reckon. Which, not exactly a word that gets used much in our culture anymore, but I'd really love for it to come back. <laughs> like, reckon's a good word. We only ever see it on old westerns now, right? A reckoning. So, what's going on in a reckoning? Well, it's, it means to align things to being right. To take action to put something in its correct category. So in the Western, what's the good guy doing? He's bringing justice, right? 
He's making things right. You ever have a moment that changed the way you see someone? Something happened and said something or they did something and in an instant there was a turn inside of you. And no matter what else happened, you couldn't unsee or unhear that thing. It forever changed the way you categorize them. Paul had a moment of reckoning. Things got immediately shuffled around and placed in their proper category. Something happened and now Paul regards all of those things that used to be most valuable to him in an entirely different way than before that moment. So how does he now regard them? Well, that's the second word that we need to pay attention to in verse 8. Rubbish. He says that he now reckons those things as rubbish. That's not a bad translation. It's actually a pretty solid translation in, in, in its most general sense. The word that Paul is using in the Greek means trash. That's true. Um, the problem, though, at least for Americans, uh, is that we have a lot of different words for trash. And in our culture, rubbish tends to be the word we want to use when we're trying to dress it up a little bit. Right? It's a cute little word compared to our other options for trash, our other options for garbage. But Paul ain't talking about anything cute here. That's not what's going on at all. In the Greek, the Greek carries the idea of something being harmful to you. You need to dispose of it because if you don't make it go away, it will end up being hazardous for you. It's vile. Um, the word is most commonly used in Paul's day to talk about garbage, but there are also times that we can point to where it's very clearly used to talk about animal waste. Cute is entirely the wrong picture here. And so Paul here says that all of the things that used to define him and used to shape his life are not simply less important than they used to be because of his relationship with Jesus. No, now they've actually been recategorized in his own head and heart as something that is harmful to him. They're in the way of where he wants to go. They stand in the way of what he's trying to get to. So Paul now sees the world and he sees his place in the world as in an entirely different way. And he's been given new eyes to see, we could say it that way. And so what he used to value, he, he no longer values. It's not just second place. It's a problem for me. It's in the way of what I want. What he used to spend his time and energy chasing after, he now has no interest of chasing what it used to claim his attention and claim his affections are now seen as a barrier to what he truly loves. So here's our distinction for the week. Spelled out in as much detail as I know how to spell it. Because Jesus has made himself known, because he has repositioned us before him, the church and those within the church now reckons things in a way that's distinct from the rest of the world. Like Paul, we used to value and pursue as chief in our affections. Those things are now either downgraded for us, less important for us, or even recategorized as harmful to our greatest value and pursuit. It all gets filtered through the lens of knowing Jesus. It all gets measured by and assessed by a calculus of what gains us more and more of him. Or as Paul said, that I may attain by any means possible the resurrection of the dead. The Apostle Paul can say to a crowd of Judaizers that he doesn't need his flawless Jewish identity anymore because his identity in Jesus is far better, it's far sweeter, it's far more satisfying. 
He can confidently tell them that leaning on his Jewish identity is a step backwards for where he's wanting to go. And it robs him of a far more eternal prize. So here's, here's the question this morning. What are, you, what are you chasing? What are you chasing? What's the thing that if you get the thing, everything will be set? What's the thing that if you get the thing, the life will be complete or the life will finally bring rest? Does it get measured by how well it helps you know Jesus? Or is it more likely a sidekick, Jesus a sidekick on your journey of chasing after that other lovely thing? Come along, Jesus, while we go get what I love. But whatever gain I had, Paul says, I reckon as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I reckon everything is lost. Not, not because those things are, aren't valuable. It's not, that's not it at all. Ontologically valuable. But because knowing Jesus is so much a far surpassing worth, church, the fastest way to make a good thing a terrible thing is to try to treat it like an ultimate thing. As soon as you put a second place thing on the first place pedestal, you, you reveal just how unworthy it is of being first place. But those who have had their position before God changed by God, they now gladly prioritize things in light of that position change. So what do we do with this stuff, huh? How can we respond to, to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus already, we, we respond the same way we do every single week, by repenting of sin and by leaning, leaning into what God reveals about himself in the text. And this week, I think the response probably ought to take the shape of asking critical questions about our priorities. Are they, are they ever on the judgment seat for you? Have you ever bothered to say, is that really what I ought to be chasing? Is that really what is best for me, for my family, for my kids, for my whatever? I think we start by asking critical questions of our priorities, critical questions of things that we hold up as badges of our identities. According to Paul, they don't have to be bad things to be in the way. There's a lot for Paul to be proud of. Man, how, how blessed was he that his parents raised him up in the Jewish faith and that was important to their family? That was, that was great until Jesus showed up. And they needed to walk away from all that just so they could have Jesus. They don't have to be bad things to be in the way. So how do those things help you follow Jesus better? And if the answer's in there, great, awesome. Let me, let me help you chase after it. But if it's not there, well, maybe that thing needs to be pulled down off the pedestal. Love to help you with that too. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. That's the time that we set aside each week to help you try to translate head thoughts into you know, lifestyle actions. And we can talk. I'll be down front here if you want to talk. But What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How, how do you respond? It's easy, by meeting Jesus. By meeting him. Listen, I, I get it. <laughs> Absolutely none, none of what I've said this morning, not a lick of it, matters to you if you don't see Jesus and his surpassing worth. Fully aware of that. But I'd love for you to see him. You don't have to stay in the dark on that. 
The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all separated relationally from God, that we are, uh, that we are all owed the just and right punishment for that sin. The, the Bible calls that punishment death. Not a pretty picture at all, but the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive together by his grace through Christ. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that we can't live, and He died on the cross in our place to make payment for our sin, and He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of His own perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the King who conquered sin and death, He calls on you to respond to Him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to Him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. You can respond to Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you. You don't need me, but we can talk. I'll be down front. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. For some of you, it's to, to take the step and to formally, uh, finally formally join our church family. And I, I'd love to sit and talk with you about what, those, what that looks like and what those next steps are. But maybe for others, it's, it's time to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Baptism doesn't save someone, but it is an act of a public testimony of, of what God has done in you and the radical change that he's brought you out of death and into life. And we got several baptisms coming up here in a, in a couple of weeks. Let's, let's talk. Maybe you can be a part of that time. Or maybe it's time to publicly say yes to some call that God is placing on your heart to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. And man, let's go. I'd love to help you figure out what those next steps are. I'm here for it. Whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for new gospel priorities. Thank you for good things in our life that get to be number two and number three and number four priorities, but I know the tendency of my own heart well enough to know that they slip into that first place spot and far more often than I'm comfortable admitting out loud. And I'm convinced that by the time I achieve this goal or present myself in such and such a way that I will have arrived. But you are far more beautiful than anything I've ever put on the pedestal instead of you. You are far more valuable. You are far more life-bringing. And you have promised an eternal reward. What am I doing? Now, convict us of sin where things creep up higher on the priority list than they ought to. I'm guilty of that as well. Call us to yourself and to see you as clearly as we're able to see you in these days. Maybe so that uh, the nonsense never creeps back in. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? <laughs> give, them, give them a picture of you and Let's sit back and watch what you change in them. We love you. Thank you for loving us first and for loving us best. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.